This is Who She Knows, a podcast produced by She Knows Media. And this is your host, Elisa Camahort-Page, Chief Community Officer for She Knows Media. Today, we'll be talking about the power of crafting the perfect pitch about your business, your big idea, your blog, or your background. At She Knows Media, we run a program for women entrepreneurs called The Pitch, including a pitch competition at our conferences. So I wanted to talk to some women who have been on both sides of the table during a pitch, delivering it and judging it, and find out what makes that perfect pitch so important. Sally Krawcheck, CEO and co-founder of Elevest, a digital investment advising company focusing on the needs of women, is with us right now. Sally has spent a storied career in corporate investment, and now she's come over to the entrepreneurial side of the table to help other women get more from their money and their big ideas. Sally will be appearing at Blogger 16 this August, both as MC of the pitch competition, but also to kick us off with her inspiring and motivating philosophy about getting more women into the investment and investor pipeline. Sally, welcome to Who She Knows. Hey, Elisa, so happy to be with you. So I want to jump right into this career of yours, which is so amazing and and now you coming over to the land of entrepreneurism but can you first tell everyone a bit about your background and what inspired you to leave wall street when you had achieved such success sure um but yeah you know it's funny when i go over my background i exhaust myself sometimes (laughs) because i've been around for a while my 20s i was an investment banker junior investment banker Um, And it was really in my 30s that I started to love and enjoy my career. I was a research analyst at an independent research firm called Sanford Bernstein, Mm -hmm. director of research there, ran the business, and then in in sort of a fairy tale event, um, was invited to run Smith Barney and the research business at Citigroup back Mm. to help it recover from the research scandals of the early 2000s. Ah. Um, I I was also chief financial officer there. I ran the private bank there for a period of time and then later ran Merrill Lynch um, and U.S. Trust over at Bank of America before becoming a feminist with a capital F, (laughs) um, buying the old 85 Broads, which is a professional woman's network, um, now called Elevate Network, and launching Elevest, which, as you mentioned, is a digital investment platform focused on women trying to close what what we never talk about, but what is very important, which is the gender investing gap, which Mm -hmm. enables guys to earn a lot more money over the course of their lives than we do. So why go entrepreneurial? Why buy 85 Broads? Why start Elevest and sort of put put your own funds at risk and and, and sort of go down that Mm -hmm. path, which is a different path? When people would say you should think about doing something like this, first I thought, well, don't patronize me and tell tell us that women you know need something different but the truth is if we've got a gender investing gap just telling women to work harder and invest like men isn't working right and i had to do something about it and having been at the big companies why you know why would you change a big company right you're making lots of money you're doing things very well why would you yeah. rip up the sidewalk it's actually easier and more effective nothing's easy but it's like you can be mm-hmm. more effective i mm-hmm. believe by being an entrepreneur and having an impact 
than sometimes you can at a big company, and certainly that you've ever been able to in the history of the world. Well, and also, don't you find, one of the things that I really felt when I left corporate tech, in my case tech, and went into on, uh, being an entrepreneur was that I just wanted to be in control, not only of the wins, but the mistakes. I wanted to stop, yeah. you know, I wanted to control the values that my company had. I wanted to have more control over our ethics. Well, and you're, you're sort of teeing me up because one thing you were too kind to talk about when you, you referred to my background is that I've been, I think I'm the only woman on the planet who's been fired on the front page of the Wall Street Journal mm. twice. <laughs> um, Lucky and you. I was fired <laughs> the first time because I advocated during the downturn, the 0708 downturn mm -hmm. for returning client funds where we had made some mistakes in investing them. Um, and I firmly, firmly, firmly believed it was the right thing to do and could not influence um, my boss. Um, right. the, the board eventually voted with me we partially reimburse clients, wow. but of course, by that point, he, we, I was getting fired. Mm -hmm. um, so you want to talk about, while I had responsibility for, I don't know, 35, 40,000 folks, not having that ability to have the impact that I thought was really right was a pretty pivotal and important moment for me in my career. You know, all of that... Um... All of that time in the corporate world, including, I think, your experience bucking bucking the trend, I guess, and going against um, the conventional wisdom about what should be done in scenarios. Um, what 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 skill from all that time spent, and including your front page firings, what did you take? <laughs> what did you take away with you that you think has served you best? Hard work is necessary, typically for success. I mean. Hard work doesn't guarantee success, but mm -hmm. it certainly gets you a lot closer to success, mm -hmm. whether it's big company or small company. Right. Um, I would say the other thing is that failure is not fatal. Mm. Um, and that, you know, I remember, Elisa, there was a buddy of mine who was fired from her job, and everybody on the planet knew she was fired from her job. It was in the press. Yeah. Sort of. You know, it wasn't front page, but it was in the press. And I went to breakfast with her. One day, and I remember she spent the whole breakfast trying to convince me she hadn't been fired. And I just felt so sorry for her. Yeah, that's worse. Um, she was so concerned yeah. about what other people were thinking. So I think another lesson is nobody really cares. If, yeah. Nobody cares if you fail. The only part, you know, you care, your immediate family cares. But yep. I assure you, the rest of the world is busy doing their rest of the world stuff. And one thing I actually really appreciate about the Silicon Valley ethos is that failures actually in the entrepreneurial world here is kind of a badge of honor. I mean, it's kind of a joke around here that you can fail. The more you've failed at your startup, at startups that you've co-founded, the more experience you have under your belt. And hopefully everyone's investing, hoping this will be the time you don't fail. Yeah, I, I guess so. Um, I can. I, it's not the case on the East Coast. People mm. say those words, but it's not the case. Mm. I don't know. I know one I know one very successful female entrepreneur who who had a big face plant and, and got funded again. Um, but I think, you know, to your point, you know, the more we can make this part of our culture um, and the more that we as mothers of our children um, help them get through this, because we've seen the research that says female and girls take failure harder mm -hmm. than the guys do. I can see it in my kids and helping yep. our daughters work through this, I think, is a very important lesson. Well, to your point, I think probably women pay more for their failures than the guys do in general. I think 
that's I think Sheryl Sandberg brought that up in Lean In with some data as well, mm-hmm. that there are more consequences yeah. for women. I mean, did you OK, you had those two public Wall Street Journal firings. Did you have any moments where you were kind of curled up in a ball going, oh, my God, what have I done? You know, um, did you have a dark night of the soul at all? You know, it's it's an interesting question. I mean, I certainly didn't skip home after <laughs> them, and I certainly drank alcohol mm-hmm. after them. And I absolutely had that horrible feeling in the pit of my stomach. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, no, I didn't. Um, I didn't. And, and look, I had a, I, I do remember one, I mean, so I never sat there and it's over and I'm crying all night and, you know, I can't get out of bed. Um, I did have a moment, though, in which I remember telling my brother, who is very, who I'm very close to, and saying, I, you know, I don't know, am I going to get, make it back? And he said, of course you will. And I said, why do you say that? And I was waiting to sort of hear, because you're terrific, mm-hmm. because you're so, you know, this or you're so that or, or things you, you sort of would, well, frankly, hope your brother would say. And he was like, because you're just not going to give up. And mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, OK, well, I guess that's as good. right? That is as good. <laughs> yeah. yeah, for sure. Okay, um, I got it. Yeah. So so you're coming to Blogger 16 this summer to uh, lead the pitch, um, our pitch competition and be one of our judges. And I'm sure throughout your career, you were on the side of the table where you were hearing pitches uh, many, many, many times. Um, and now you're probably more on the other side of the table where you're you're making them. Um, but what what could someone do when you were on the side of the table judging pitches? And, and what would you advise our pitch competitors? What can they do in like the first five minutes if they only have five minutes? What grabs and holds your attention? Yeah. Um, and and so here I'll bring in some gendered stuff, okay. uh, because having been on the other side of the table from men and women, mm-hmm. um, I'll tell you, confidence matters. Yeah. Confidence is compelling. You know, I've seen some research that says that the confidence is so compelling, Elisa, that even after a person's confidence in themselves has been proven to be misplaced, we still are just compelled by it. Mm. Um, And so I'll tell you, I I always say I just hate all this advice to women that tells them how to change. But ladies, right? So many times I've seen women come in and, you know, is this still a good time? Do you have enough time? I can come, you know. And then sort of start in on the wrists, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas you see the gentlemen who walk in with a certain swagger. And so, look, I don't, I don't like to speak in public. I do it all the time. Huh. I lose my breath. I lose my spit. I shake. I tremble. I can't stand it. Wow. But, man, before you go on that stage, deep breath, deep breath, you know, and just go out and own it. Yep. absolutely own it. Yep. Slow down, mm-hmm. you know, have the confidence to let your passion shine through. And, you know, I always I always think that we can practice on this. And there's so much more written communication these days than verbal or oral, I guess, um, because of email. And so I actually use my email as an exercise constantly to remove qualifying language. I remove I believe or I think or just or actually or do you think or, you know, I I, rem- yeah. I just go through before, you know, 
first of all, I go through every email and add humanity. Like I add the salutation and the how are you. I, my first thought when I write an email is I just, I write the damn thing. Like boom, boom, boom. And then I go through, add a little humanity so I don't sound so curt. But I also go through and say, where am I, where am I undercutting myself? Where am I qualifying what, I, what I'm wanting to get across here? How can I convey with humanity, but to your point, confidence, my message and not sound like everything I say is up for debate? Right, right. I think that's great advice. Of course, my having spent my career in financial services, I actually have to go the opposite way. I'm the, the queen of the one word reply. <laughs> yep. And I, uh-oh. Uh oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. So after a few, <laughs> oh, you know, we have to pick up the phone and say, now email's a bad form of communication. Yeah. You know what I really meant. Let's talk a little bit about Elevest itself, which is all about helping women become investors and get into investing. Um, what do you think are the key components to making that happen that that are different from what men require to get them into the investing game. So it's really interesting, Elisa, because I, I think I mentioned before, I sort of fought the idea for a while. I said, geez, you know, by, gen by something for women, do you mean that it needs to be somehow remedial financial education or, or, or you know, pink or pink it and shrink <laughs> it or whatever? You know, it's interesting because actually earlier today on Twitter, I had some woman just killing me over it, just killing me, like, how dare you, you're so patronizing, et cetera. So I was like, well, back up. First of all, let's examine why in our culture we think for women is patronizing, mm -hmm. right? Why do we automatically think it's the lesser? Okay, so leave that aside. Um, because what I'll tell you about Elevest is it is, I think, the smartest investing platform out there. We have four patents pending on it. Um, to that end. And so what it does for women, what women have told us they want is not to spend their life picking large cap value mutual funds versus small cap ETFs, um, figuring out whether a certain investment will generate alpha. What women have told us they want is help and guidance in choosing what their goals are going to be, choosing what they want to achieve in life, buy a house, start a business, retire well, mm -hmm. have a baby. Mm -hmm. And for us to provide them with a full financial plan for how much it will cost, when they can get there, what they can afford, et cetera, um, enable them to make trade-offs with that plan. Well, if you want to start the business in six years, maybe you can't have the baby for eight years mm -hmm. or maybe you know, you'll have to retire later. And then put together a highly customized investment portfolio that will get them to their goals or better in the majority of markets. Um, you know, I think you just answered what I was I, I was going to ask you because I looked at the site and I noticed you used some language about Elevest um, having a goal-oriented approach to investing versus, uh, I think, quote-unquote, beating benchmarks. And I was going to say, well, what, what do you mean by that? But I think you just totally explained yeah. it. So it's about life goals, not just can we, if the um, yeah. S&P 500 is doing X, how can we beat that by 1%? Oh, is that even who, what you need? You know? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, that's great. But what's your model then? What is Elevest's model as a business? Well, so, so I'll back up for a second, Lisa, and I'll tell you that we did, this, this didn't just spring fully formed out of my mind. You know, parts of it I, I hypothesized. Of course, I had a lot of bad ideas too. Yeah. But in the hundreds of hours of research we did with women, hundreds of hours, hundreds of women, only one woman said, I want to beat the market. And we said, really? And she said, yeah, that's what I'm supposed to say, right? 
Um, and so this really comes from how we women think, and we tend to think conceptually. Our idea at Elevest is let we're fiduciaries. We um, are required to act and want to act in our client's best interest. We've got decades of experience doing this. Let us do this work for you. All that detail is there if you want it, but if you don't, um, let us do this for you because where women are today is, geez, I want to start that business in 10 years. Well, do I have enough money? How much do I need? Right. If I start here, how, how big a deposit should I make every month? What type of investment should I make to get there? You know, there are a lot of ways I don't believe in gender determinism and men and women being that different, but I totally see the difference in how my husband and I think about money. I'm like a hoarder of liquid money. And to me, this is a completely rational choice because it was it was doing that that allowed me to buy my first condo as a single woman um, because I and not, you know, could put 20 percent down and not and do all of that. And then that wiped me out. And then I build it up and I hoarded my cash for another few years. And that's what allowed me to start blog her and not pull a salary for two years because I was living off my savings. But I try not to think too hard about the missed opportunity that also well. is represented there, you know. That's that's the issue, Elisa. I so know. you are like so many women that I speak to, which is the idea of valuing the certainty. I have the money, I value it. What I would urge you and your listeners to do, whether you invest with Elevest or someone else, do it. Yeah. Do it. I'm gonna give you some numbers that are your your um jaw is gonna drop onto your table. So I'm gonna give you some numbers, okay. which is if you're a female, you're making eighty five thousand dollars a year. No, you know, doing you're 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 doing well. You are putting aside 20% of it, which is what experts say to do both for retirement and for some of those long-term goals, buy that house, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And you put it in the bank and you say, I'm not, I, I'm not ready to invest today. Either uh, you know, I'm nervous about the downside or I don't understand yet or whatever. And you, you, you keep saying that and you say it for 10 years. We see it all the time, Elisa, mm -hmm. right? See it all the time. Or I'll make a lot more money later, so I'm going to wait and do it later. Yeah. The amount of money that we estimate that that costs you, given historic markets up and down, historic mm -hmm. markets, the amount of money that costs you to I'm wait cringing. that decade I'm cringing. every day is $100. <gasps> no. Every No. I know. Oh I know. And so what I would say to you is if you and I were sitting here and you were to say, look, I, Sally, I've just discovered this hole in my pocketbook. You say, Elisa, that's terrible news. You have a hole in your pocketbook. And you'd say, worse news, Sally, I've got a hundred bucks that fell out of it today. I'd say that, Elisa, that's terrible. If you came back to me two days later and said, I, my hundred dollars <laughs> fell out again and again, I'd say, Elisa, you're a nut. You need to fix your friggin' pocketbook. <laughs> and if you waited a week, I'd, I'd you'd be certifiable, certifiable. <laughs> but that's what happens yep. given those numbers. So I, I've said it before, I'll say it again, the cost of waiting and the cost of being in the bank is high. And shame on Wall Street because, you know, we have been, we have, as an industry, have essentially for forever told women they need to do it the man's way. And it costs women so much. And so the final thing I'm going to leave you with is 90% of women manage their money on their own at some point in their lives. Yeah. And so... The idea of, you know, let him do it, it's his job, even if he's the best guy in the world, he's going to, on average, going to die before the female does. Mm -hmm. And so we need to get ourselves straight and get ourselves ready. 
That is so true. I'm super motivated, so uh, I will report back. I think I need to put some accountability in this. Like, I'm going to... Okay. Do you guys... Uh, by the way, do you have, like, an accountability thing or a social sharing element? In our test, we asked that. And mm. what women actually told us is they they want to know what other women are doing. They just don't want to share what they're uh, doing. Well, okay, yeah. We did it. a survey long ago and found out that when it comes to women bloggers who will talk about everything and anything, talking about money was their least favorite thing. They would much rather wow. talk about sex. They would rather talk about their Got kids. It. But money's hard. But I think we need to change that. I mean, I think that's part of the change that needs to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, I do have one more question that is really kind of looking into the future i think a lot about the future of work the future of economy especially with technology and this so-called gig economy which i think has many problematic things about it um do you think that in general um or a woman orienting her thoughts towards entrepreneurism or small business development or side hustle i call it often everybody's got a side hustle you know side hustle mm-hmm. development do you think that's generally an advantageous path for women to go down, think about, and make decisions about? I do, actually. Um, I really do. I am optimistic about women in business, not because I think the guys are going to get it and start promoting all of us, though they may, but because the opportunity to start our own things is so much greater than it's ever been. And this is without venture capitalists getting it, okay? Yeah. Um, but if I think about my own LOS, so we mentioned earlier, I ran Merrill Lynch. Our investing platform at Merrill Lynch cost us $1.3 billion <laughs> to put in place. Mm-hmm. A handful of years ago, I met with a company who was doing much of the same stuff Merrill was doing. In fact, so much of it that it was stealing financial advisors from Merrill. And their platform cost $25 million. Mm. The LOS platform we've spent, which does much of the same thing, um, doesn't have you know, as much of that human interface. Uh, but to my mind, actually puts together the best financial plan in the industry and the best investing plan in the industry. That's my opinion. Been around for a long time. That's my opinion. Yeah. That's what we tried to build. Our yeah. platform cost us several million dollars to put in place. That's how quickly things are changing. Yeah. So I could not have started Elevest 10 years ago. I couldn't have started it even five years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I can start it now. Yeah. And so I'm seeing this occur again and again and again. And, you know, one of my best friends from from college has, you know, was out of the workforce for, us for a while, cannot get back into traditional corporate America, but has started her own thing from her living room. Mm-hmm. So I, I fully, fully recognize there are folks who work in the gig economy who would much prefer to have full-time opportunities. Um I do. I completely get that. I would, I believe that the opportunity that it um, gives so many people to engage in some way in the economy when they could not before mm-hmm. um, because corporate America wasn't listening is a very important occurrence and trend. Thank you so much for spending so much time and talking to me today. I could go on and on. Obviously, I have some some uh, personal issues around <laughs> money management, <laughs> so I'm I'm off to Elevest. But um, but I really want to thank you, Sally. It was it was great talking to you. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you in August. I, Elisa, I cannot wait. I can't wait to see you in person. And I can't wait to see everybody there. I'm really looking forward to it. 
Up now, we have Majora Carter. She's an urban revitalization strategist and has established a number of organizations, including most recently Startup Box, a company creating urban onshoring partnerships between companies and underserved communities. Majora was the winner of last year's pitch competition at Blogger 15, and this August, she's joining us on the judging panel for the pitch at Blogger 16. Majora, so glad to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. So you have done it all. You've been an activist, you've run a nonprofit, you've been a consultant, now you're an entrepreneur. Tell us just a little bit about your journey, I mean, how you got to the point of leading Startup Box now. Well, I think I've always been somewhat entrepreneurial in, in nature just because of trying to accomplish any of the things that I've done, whether mm-hmm. it was you know, environmental and or economic development solution projects or anything of that nature. You kind of have to be um, sort of multitasking in a bunch of ways. But when it came right down to it, I was really excited about, you know, the kind of social um, drivers that sort of made me me, but Mm -hmm. really looking at what are the economic drivers that communities, low status communities in particular needed. And technology was one of them. So how do we make sure that we're helping people in communities like this fully participate in the tech economy as producers and not only consumers was Mm. really the the meat behind Startup Box. Well, that's so interesting because I think all the data is very clear that low status communities, people of color in general, um, they are leaders in using technology and relying on technology. Um, Even as we hear, even as we hear about the digital divide, it's actually also still true that they're early adopters and heavy users. So I think that's so interesting to, to work to get them on the production side um, so that they can be served even better by the technology they obviously want to use so much. Absolutely. So it sounds like the, the common thread amongst all these things that you've done has been something you just said just now, which was you got to find the business case. And I'm mm-hmm. just curious if you see that what that business case is changes a lot, whether you're doing nonprofit or for-profit, or at its heart, is it kind of fundamentally the same? Oh, it is absolutely fundamentally the same. If Mm. it doesn't, if it's not economically viable, it won't fly after Mm -hmm. a while. I mean, mean, even if you're looking at what are the, um, and granted, you have to look at return on investment in different ways. Like, for example, you know, if, um, you know, sometimes some things aren't just about dollars and cents. You right. know, it is about quality of life. I mean, are people happier? You know, are they reporting that, you know, they feel more pride in their community or in themselves? I mean, obviously you can't put, actually, you, you it's priceless. You can't really put a price on it as a matter of fact. <laughs> right. But in, in regard to actually running a business that ultimately is designed, you know, it's to really do what we were trying to do with Startup Box, which is, again, t- under understanding that people incredibly tax tech savvy within our communities but you know but mostly as consumers and how do we kind of break down the barriers so that they're actually providing a real service within mm-hmm. the the industry and being productive members of it mm-hmm. and so that's when we had to do all the market research and understand that there was a need that we could actually fill and with a minimal viable training model and quality assurance other software testing and and other uh, types of software services we could give folks a foundation upon which to build their careers. Mm. Now, I'm completely intrigued by this new B Corps status. Startup Box is a B Corps, is that correct? 
Startup Box is not a B Corps yet, uh, but once, because we're being incubated under a nonprofit, we operate uh, as an enterprise. Um, but our goal is to spin off and become its own entity. And then, yes, then we will be pursuing B Corps status. Yeah, I'm completely intrigued by that. I know that companies like, oh, I think Ben and Jerry's in Patagonia became B Corps. Yes. And I think it allows <laughs> for that more holistic, as you said, there are things that are priceless that companies can deliver to their mm-hmm. communities. Why should they not count towards the bottom line of what that company does? So Yeah, well, my company, my company, Majora Carter Group, the, my urban revitalization strategy uh, firm, which Startup Box did kind of roll out of, mm-hmm. <laughs> the idea of it did come out of that. But um, we are a B Corp. And ah, so ultimately, you know, we know what, what's involved in, mm-hmm. in all of that, which is, you know, basically, look, if you're if you want to do good business and if you want to do right by the planet and your employees and your community, you know, having that certification won't, won't really mean, you know, anything. It wouldn't be mm-hmm. you'd be doing it any old way. Uh-huh. But what it does do is say to the world, like, we actually meet a standard. And that's why it's important, I think, for those standards to exist. Because it really does. It's sort of like, I think healthy competition is a good thing, mm-hmm, <laughs> frankly, because mm-hmm. it, it helps people see there's something that they can aspire to yep. and, um, you know, and, and deliver on a promise. And that is the promise that you make when you decide that you're going to, to um, uh, abide by B Corps standards. Cool. So we talked about like what's the common thread amongst all the things you've done. But now that you're sort of in entrepreneurial mode with Startup Box, do you, startup box, do you find... Anything that's somewhat <laughs> no, we like startup bucks. Yeah, too. really. <laughs> we want to make best, a lot of it. <laughs> best, best misspeaking ever. <laughs> um, um, do you find what do you think is different about running this kind of startup versus the other kinds of ventures that you've done? What's unique about it? Well, we're only selling a service. Mm. So, and we sell services, but we also sell you know, other types of, of things in the work that we've done before. And whereas this one, you know, what we've done just in terms of the tech economy, um, you know, for number one, you know, we're, we're a little different because we are a, a women and minority owned mm-hmm. company, essentially. And what we do is we package this service that, you know, our team is almost exclusive. It, it is exclusively, you know, young people of color, you know, mm-hmm. all under the age of 30. Um, you know, so statistically, they're not really part of the hiring um, you know, they, they are, unfortunately, um, you know, sort of casualties in, in the statistical hiring practices mm-hmm. within the tech industry. So that's kind of different. But what's important is that we are creating this model that you can do this stuff and that it's possible, you know, to have a, a viable uh, business that can serve the needs of the tech community and actually be a full part of it as well. So it's really exciting, you know, to be in this thing and mm-hmm. the fact that we're located, you know, in the South Bronx, which is decidedly outside of New York City's, you know, traditional tech ecosystem. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there's a bunch of things that we're doing and really proving out the model that you can create great opportunities to um, broaden and expand our tech ecosystems in in, in, uh, in our cities. Well, I'm going to ask you this because you and I have talked about this before. When, when Lisa Stone and Joy Desjardins and I started Blog Her, there was this kind of immediate assumption, first assumption that we must be doing a nonprofit because we were women doing womany things. And you coming mm-hmm. from the nonprofit world, and now you're an African-American woman starting a for-profit uh, mm-hmm. arm of your company. Um, do you, do you, what do you face that you think is really uniquely driven by the fact that you're an African-American woman? 
And, and do you encounter oh. any of those same assumptions? Oh, we definitely do. So even though we are being incubated under a nonprofit, we are decidedly a, a, a business. And so mm-hmm. we are earning income. And, and again, we're planning on rolling it off into its own um, LLC or some other kind of entity. But we, what's interesting is that you know, as we operate it as a business. And that's not even something that we tell our clients. So most of them don't even know uh, that we are that way, uh, um, which is fine. But what has been fascinating um, and, you know, uh, you know, sadly, distinctly American, I think, is that, you know, when they see me, um, you know, and offering a pitch, it's kind of like they just automatically go to that place. Mm-hmm. Many, many folks that we've pitched to just go to that place where it's just like, oh, you know, you're a black lady. And, like, you know, I have a bit of a profile and we know you're from the place like the South Bronx. So you must be working with children. Even after I've given mm-hmm. them, you know, a mm-hmm. pitch about where this we, we sell software services. This is what we do. You know, we've got a team that will, you know, really crank on your project. And, and get you what you need and do all sorts of fun things around functionality and compatibility, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and instead, you know, I've been reduced to like running an, an after school program. Oh my um, whereas <laughs> my, you know, which is, there's no shame in that game. But right. It's not but, my game. And, uh, <laughs> but they're not hearing you. They're not hearing totally. what you say. No, they're just not hearing me. They'd like see me and go, oh, that's what you do. And, uh, but what, um, you know, my, business partner, you know, who's a white man, you know, he could do the same exact pitch and then it's, then they just talk business. It's just, it's so clear. And it's gotten to the point sometimes where I'm like, you know, maybe you can go out on this call. I don't need to go there. Oh. I just don't. And um, because part of it is just like, you know, we have a business that we need to run. And, yeah. you know, until, you know, folks actually deal, can deal, you know, openly with this, with this kind of stuff, um, you know, and just be able to see me, you know, I've more, I'm more interested in actually running the business well, and which means I, we need clients, and that's yeah. that. I mean, I, I hear you, and as a business owner, in the end, you're responsible to, well, you're mm-hmm. responsible to your employees, you're responsible to your investors, you're responsible, so I, I totally understand that, hey, let's do what will get the job done, but God, there's a part of me that just kills to hear that. Oh, yeah. Well, and it's not happening to me. So at least with Lisa and Jory, like there was only another woman back there. (laughs) Yeah, it really bugs the crap out of me as well. I mean, I'm not I'm not saying I like it. Yeah. um, But I am saying that this is something that, you know, believe me, we will we will pick our battles. And there are times when we're just like, yeah, this is, you know, we're going to have this conversation. And other times it's just like, no, (laughs) Um, it'll it'll go in your memoir. Yeah, it, oh, believe me, I'm already working on it. <laughs> Are you? Oh, that sounds, oh, yeah, that's absolutely. exciting. So you won our pitch competition last year. And yes, I want to know, I did. It, did you learn anything new about yourself or your company? It, there was a whole pre-process to that of recording your 60-second video yeah. and preparing for having just two to three minutes on stage. And let's face it, even, you know, for, for those who have never done it, like a real pitch to investors, they're not making five-minute meetings with you. They are making yeah. a reasonable meeting with you. But most people say if you don't capture them in the first five minutes, then the rest of it's just filler. So that's sort of the idea wow. behind us saying, okay, you're going to have all of a, a minute video and a couple of minutes extra. Boom, that's it. And did you learn anything new in that process? Or had you done that? Oh, my gosh. It was possibly one of the both nerve-wracking and (laughs) thrilling rides of my life to go through that process. Mm. Um, Because, you know, we do spend a lot of time thinking and talking about our work. And, you know, but to have it, you know, to be, like, literally feel like you're on a hot seat, you know, to get it down to that 60 seconds was really just 
so scary. Um, yeah. But once you got it, it was like, oh, like this is possible. And you know what? This is really good. Like we mm. are doing some really awesome stuff. And I should be able to say this in 60 seconds. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> and, um, but 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 uh, having just real, real quick, having yeah. the live, you know, the the being in front of people, because mm. um, was another part that you know totally I was was almost overwhelming because it wasn't just because first of all you were there with like a bunch of other women who were going through the same thing right and you and it was so backstage it was this incredibly supportive you know wonderful experience because you know we we all knew that we were winners and didn't make you know and I know that might sound cheesy but it's true mm-hmm. and you know we had the greatest respect for each other and it was just like you know we're all going to be just fine you know, as we yep. push the, our own individual agendas forward and by us being up on the stage together, it's like we're all just like literally handing, you know, a great big hug, you know, and mm-hmm. support to, to the mm-hmm. other. So, but it was, but it was also kind of crazy because, you know, part of it is you prepare some and then, you know, things just happen and you're just like, I need to do this other thing. And yeah. that's what you do. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that that's such a huge part of being an entrepreneur is thinking on your feet and responding to, you know, adapting to what's thrown at you right at the moment. We do have that live. We do have that judging panel on stage and they're going to ask you questions and give you perspective that hasn't been rehearsed or scripted or planned. So all of that is right. very much in the moment. And I think for the audience of 3000, mostly women seeing the six of you and you were so different, but so equally passionate and committed and like thinking um i i just think it gave people such a model for there's a lot of different ways to do this there's a lot of different roads you can go you you know i i i was gonna say it's somewhat similar i don't know if i ever had to give that kind of pitch with blogger but we did create a mission statement and i had come from the corporate world where you know companies would hire expensive consultants who would come up with a mission statement and it would get laminated and put on a wall in a conference room and no one ever thought about it again Um, But uh, Lisa, Jory, and I had made a mission statement right after the first conference when we decided to start a company. And it was that we are here to create opportunities for community exposure, education, and economic empowerment for the women in our community. And it, it really was very helpful when we were deciding what partnerships to take on, what new products or services to do, what part of our mission does that serve? Like that little 10 word or whatever, however many words it is, like if it doesn't fit into Mm -hmm. doing something along that mission, then why are we doing it? Mm -hmm. I agree. Yeah. Do you find yourself in the position of being a sounding board for other entrepreneurs? Um, Oh gosh. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All the time. Um, being an entrepreneur for as long as I have and, you know, being, I guess, maybe I'm a glutton for punishment. I don't know. <laughs> but you, you, you can sense really, or at least I can sense really quickly, you know, if someone's like, if they're going to be in it, if they really have the chops to stay in it for a while, because I don't think there's, a, again, no shame in the game of someone who doesn't want to do this, but it's, I find it would be silly of me not to give people like a realistic, you know, assessment mm-hmm. of what they're going to be up for. And, and I do that. And I find that um, I end up talking people out of, <laughs> of like pursuing, you know, ideas because they, they don't necessarily have an idea of how much it's going to cost them, you know, mm-hmm. physically, monetarily, spiritually, and socially. And because um, it, it does, it, it, it can take a toll. But again, if you love this, then you will stick to it. Mm-hmm. And that's amazing. And oh my gosh, I love people like that. I mean, I love the ones who don't, who decide not to do it either. But um, 
man, the ones who are just like, yep, I get you. And I'm still going for it. I'm like, all right, then I'll be in your corner forever. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and I, mm. I do think there's something admirable about the people who go, oh, you know what? I think this is not for me. Like they are going to, yeah. they are going to save themselves their employees, if they have it, their customers, they're going to, their users, their whoever, they're going to save a lot of people, a lot of heartbreak if they realize the full story. I think there's, you know, on the one hand, while I'm super encouraging to people to make the leap and go be an entrepreneur, go figure out your big idea, go make it happen. Um, and I think there's a lot of that in society right now, that that's the answer to everything is, is go mm-hmm. be an entrepreneur. Um, and sometimes I think what you're talking about is doing people the service of saying, well, let's just make sure you understand the full picture. Cause you know what? Not everybody, yes. not everybody has to be, and it doesn't serve you, you know, it doesn't serve everybody and that's okay too. Yeah. And again, I feel like I, because I do occupy this sort of strange position where I can, you know, offer that kind of guidance, you know, really quickly. And I'm always happy to do it. Always. Yeah, me too. It's actually really fun to, to hear everybody's, everybody's big ideas. And well, I, and I also think that the fun thing is try to connect the dots, you know, like you should uh, talk to this person or have you heard about that thing? And, you know, mm-hmm. did you know there's this one over here that's got this and like, it's all just... And I, I think that spirit of that's what I do love about the entrepreneurial spirit is I think while you do find people who are sort of oh, I'm going to play my cards super close to the vest like nobody else ever had this idea in the world. And, you know, um, but most most entrepreneurs are like, yeah, I, I will talk to anyone. I want advice from anywhere. Just anything. Let's let's all become this great big mesh network of support and ideas and, you know, yeah. helping people. And that's um, and uh, gosh, you know, I was just saying uh earlier this week that sometimes we talk about how it takes a village to raise a child. And I'm like, you know what? It kind of takes a village to be an adult. And it certainly takes Hello. a village, <laughs> takes a village I, to, to, to run a company. I think <laughs> it takes a village to be an adult. Oh, that's hysterical. It does. It. Well, Majora, as always, it's been just great talking to you. I always love when we get to spend some time together, even if it's across uh, the internet, uh, um, mm. in audio only, but I am looking forward to seeing you this August in LA at the conference. And thank you for awesome. sharing your experience and your wisdom and your perspective. Really great to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. Up now we have Ai Wee Ong. She's the founder of Love With Food, a food commerce business that delivers tasty snacks to members monthly. Iwi was the winner of last year's pitch competition at our Blog Her Food conference. And this October, she'll switch to the other side of the table and be one of our judges. Iwi, welcome to Who She Knows. Hi, Lisa. How are you? Thank you for having me on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. Um, great to talk to you. So your startup, Love With Food, yes. is all around both healthy snacking and giving back. But if I'm not mistaken, correct me if I'm wrong, but your former career path, it, it didn't have anything to do with food or hunger or anything like that, did it? I mean, tell us how, wh- how did you become the founder of Love With Food? Uh, two words, midlife crisis. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you're, you're totally right. I have no background in food. Uh, my background is uh, computer science and finance. So mm-hmm. uh, the first 10 years of my career, I've been building, I spent a lot of my time building complex finance uh, uh, IT systems for big Fortune 500 companies. And, um, you know, when you put accounting and computer science together, it's really dry. 
but I can't believe I did that for 10 mm-hmm. years. Um, and uh, IT has always been my passion, so is food. And I came to a point where I really needed to do something that uh, inspires me that I'm passionate about. And food is my next biggest passion. So Love With Food basically is a marriage of um, both my uh, biggest passion and I love doing what I do every day and very happy to be working on you know a project that I'm very passionate about oh that's great but you know so you spent 10 years um, but I feel like the stuff you were working on may have been dry but it must have given you some great skills as an entrepreneur. What skills from your life in that corporate world have served you best in your entrepreneurial journey? Um, I would say the first is probably the um, the ability to move to America. So I was um, working mm. in Singapore as a financial software engineer, and I was being headhunted uh, by many U.S. companies. Um, and back then was 1999. Do you remember Y2K? Everybody thought uh, the bank will stop oh. and all they'll spit money out nonstop. Uh, and <laughs> but I also remember those were boom times here in Silicon Valley. I mean, that was, you say 1999, I, th- I think, oh, yeah, those were the good days, you know, when it was, everything was booming. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so but, well, mainly because of Y2K, that gave me the opportunity to move to the American mm-hmm. shore. Um, I was headhunted by several companies. I was offered seven jobs. And then at that time, I was like, wow. wow, you know, I'm young and, you know, poor with lots of students loan. You know, what's, what's there to lose? You know, everybody in America speaks English. Mm-hmm. So do I. It's not that difficult. So I decided <laughs> to move to the U.S. with two luggages. And um, I thought it would would be just a three to five year gig. But I, I've stayed ever since. Mm-hmm. Um, so. So my my experience in the corporate world actually one gave me a, a brand new adventure in a new country, and two uh, because I was I was a consultant I was uh, given the opportunity to live in seven to eight different cities all across the U.S. and wow. being you know being an immigrant to me it's it's very adventurous I love traveling I love you know meeting people from different culture and that's a that's a great thing about the U.S. right it's everyone from different states or different cities have a very di- different perspective. It's like a different, totally different world. Mm-hmm. So the first 10 mm-hmm. years, even though I was working on, you know, something really dry, but I had a very adventurous uh, life in the U.S. What was like the, what instigated the actual, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to quit doing this other thing. I'm going to start this company. My career was great. I was, uh, you know, making a very comfortable salary, but I just wasn't feeling uh, uh fulfilled enough mm-hmm. and and at that time I was also coming out from a very bad marriage um, that's another you know big mistake of my life mm-hmm. uh, and I was really unhappy in general I wasn't happy with uh, my career I wasn't happy with uh, my marriage and um, I think when when you're sad it, it just makes you think really hard um, mm-hmm. like what you're doing is it worthwhile does it make mm. you happy um and and I didn't it wasn't a rash decision I did take uh-huh. a break I went on a year sabbatical um mm. I went backpacking around the world for a year wow. and um and when I came back I I was I was still sad I, I don't know why 
And um, basically, a lot of it also came from a lot of anger from from uh, my my divorce. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought, you know, traveling uh, uh, a year would make me um, forgive and forget or uh, a happier person, but it didn't work. I think that's a very natural thing. I would expect the same, Iwi. Yeah, but I didn't. But what mm. the turning point for me was, you know, when when uh, a very good friend of mine, uh, I came back to U.S., I had lunch with her, and uh, she and I were at the same age, you know, and, and she was telling me, uh, um, I have bad news, uh, I'm diagnosed with breast cancer. Mm. I guess that was a slap in my face mm. that, you know, I spent all these years all this one whole year traveling the world, trying to find happiness, and yet my friend here sitting right across from me is battling for her life. And at that point, I just felt, I have no right to complain. I have no right to be bitter. I have no right to uh, be angry anymore because at the end of the day, I'm healthy. So at the same time, you know, a, a friend of mine, another friend was was having uh, difficulty selling a food at farmer's market. And I realized that, a lot of these passionate food makers um, have problems getting shelf space in grocery stores. They mm-hmm. have problems connecting with consumers. They have problems finding distribution. Mm-hmm. So, so I think it was um, a combination of events that happened that made me so determined to do something that I'm passionate about. That's you know that's how Love with Food started. So when you started Love with Food, you start you you've worked at big companies. You've been a high, high flying jet setting consultant. You've traveled around the world for a year. Now all of a sudden you're a scrappy startup. <laughs> and yes. um, what did you find? What what did you really have to step up to? What was surprising? Like what were you like? Oh crap! This is on me. No one else is going to do this. It comes to a question of how adaptable you are, right? I had the right. lifestyle for ten years. Can I switch back to, you know, being very, very scrappy? I yes. think one thing I was very surprised that I was, I was very flexible. I was very agile, so I was mm-hmm. able to, um, you know, go back to the basics, you know, because that's what, what, what you have, and, um, yeah, and and giving up the rolodex of people that I've. I've known for 10 years in the enterprise world because whoever I've known is basically uh, not relevant in my new venture because, Mm -hmm. you know, my B2B contacts cannot be translated to B2C uh, knowledge or, um, um, you know, help that I can go to. So I basically have to build my contacts and Rolodex from scratch. learn a lot of things from scratch. And I guess, um, you know, being being flexible. And as you said, this is a part of it's a commerce business, you know, packing yeah. boxes, driving yeah. into the post office. I feel like, you know, I, being the founder, I cannot complain doing all this, uh, you know, mundane stuff because uh-huh. I need to set a good example. Because if I don't set a good example, the, the uh, people on my team will not, follow and will not respect me. Mm-hmm. I remember when I interviewed um, Sarah Michelle Gellar at Blog Her Food last year, and she talked about getting whatever certification it is you have to get to pack food, to handle food, and how mm-hmm. you know she felt super competitive about it as the co-founder. Like She wanted to be the one who got the highest score and was absolutely like the role model. Um, so I think that that is super powerful. Um, Speaking of Blog Her Food last year, you won our pitch competition 
last year. And you had been out there pitching for funding, pitching your company for quite some time. But, um, you know, uh, did you learn something new about your company or yourself in that process of distilling yourself down to just a total of two to three minutes to pitch? Yeah, I I think... um... I've realized that I can be a very shameless person (laughs) to get to a goal. Um, I am very competitive. Um, (laughs) So like pitching, you know, getting investors is, it's definitely um, something brand new to me. Mm -hmm. I've never done it. uh, But having run Love with Fruit for four years, I'm, I've done it many times now that I I can do it. Um, with with no difficulties but in the beginning I think it was hard because one I lack experience and two uh, learning the jargon of uh, you know what investors look for how mm-hmm. how they speak and and being a solo founder doesn't help either yeah I mean I can imagine and it's also I think I would also think it would be tough emotionally I always go out there and say hey I'm a big proponent of having partners because not just because you can spread the work and and you can have multiple brains on a problem but because you have someone with whom you can share when things go really well but also someone with whom you can share when it's going when the going gets tough you know so I feel like it would be a, a little lonely as a solo founder I would tell people running, being an entrepreneur every day is raining shit with a chance of sunshine. <laughs> and yeah, that's, <laughs> even though this is like four and a half years in the love of food, it still feels like that. And there will be days that I just want to talk to someone. Um, you know, I'm, I don't look for suggestions. I don't look for, um, uh, you know, people who feel like they need to tell me what to do. I don't. I sometimes just telling someone, uh, it just makes me feel better. What's your most useful advice you have uh, for someone who's going to be pitching and how to really get to the essence of their pitch? Even if they know they have a longer meeting, how would you advise someone to really make the most impact and the most bang for their bandwidth, I guess, that you're getting with these folks um, in the first few minutes? I would say uh, be concise. And that's Mm. one thing I've learned the hard way too, because, you know, you're so passionate, you want to say so much, but I realized that the, the, the more you share, it might create more confusion. If you can explain your business to your grandma or grandpa, and if they understand, then it's, it's, short and sweet is concise you can explain really quickly to an investor you know what you do here's your traction so far right and what you plan to do and something i was going to ask you about is that so many of our pitch entrepreneurs have this explicit social good component in their models as do you so Pete, you donate uh, boxes and food basically for every sort of like the Tom's model of buy one donate one because um, yes. I often think when we were pitching blog her that the social impact we were making on the women in our community was super important and it's what built our value but it was sometimes hard to mm-hmm. quantify that value for an investor do you run into that oh yeah definitely and I have investors who don't believe in the model mm. and I know. Just tell them it's fine. Then you you don't have to invest. Your investors or people you're pitching to? 
people I pitched to. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, because it's um, it's a value of the company that I refuse to remove just because mm-hmm. an investor is willing to write a big check right. with the caveat that uh, you know we eliminate the social mission. Right. Uh, I refuse to give that up. You know, you know, if someone's willing to write me a six million dollars check because and expecting me to give up the social mission, uh, I will walk away. And I've done yeah. that before because that's not who I am. You know, I just feel like you're asking me to change my personal values mm-hmm. and change the value of the company. Well, and change what makes you so passionate about it to put your whole blood, sweat and tears into it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if it's all about the money, I would have just stayed mm-hmm. into in the enterprise business if it's all about the money. <laughs> right. <laughs> there are easier ways to make a buck than being most of us who are startup entrepreneurs. <laughs> there are easier yeah. ways. Yeah. Yeah. That easy way to make a very comfortable income. Uh, being mm-hmm. a founder is definitely not the easiest way. It's actually the most difficult way. Yes. Um, yeah. So I have walked away with con- con- uh, conversations like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and being true to yourself is really important because you want to attract investors who believe in that mission, who believe in your value. Because investors are like spouses. Yeah. Or maybe they're worse than spouses. You can't divorce them. <laughs> uh, so, so it is really important to be true to yourself so that you attract the right investors who will be with you for the long term in good and bad times. Sometimes people who are pitching their companies get the very best advice from people who have already been down that path. So I'm really looking forward to having you on the other side of the table, so to speak, at Blogger Food this October, uh, giving next this year's pitch competitors your good advice. And we really appreciate you being part of our pitch community. Uh, so thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. I had a great time chatting with you. That's it for this episode of Who She Knows, a She Knows Media podcast. For next week's episode, we'll be talking about how innovative women are driving the use of technology and social media to address mental health issues in our communities. I'm your host, Elisa Camelhort-Page, Chief Community Officer at She Knows Media. Please tweet me, at Elisa C, or leave a message for us on the Blog Her or She Knows Media Facebook pages. We want to hear from you. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>